Hey everybody, we are live here at the lovely Gestalt IT offices in wonderful Hudson, Ohio. I, of course, am Rich Straffolino. I got my man Tom Hollingsworth in the same room with me. You're seeing a wider look at the uh, prestigious Gestalt IT studios. We're going to be doing the Gestalt IT rundown here. We are streaming live to YouTube. Usually we post the video later to YouTube. We're going to be trying out doing more YouTube streaming. I think this YouTube thing is really going to take off here, Tom. Um, I've, I've heard that. I, I hear maybe it's uh, something to do with Google search results. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like the youths really are taking to it. And so uh, we're going to be uh, probably going to be streaming from there, I think, pretty consistently. We're still going to have the video on all of our usual sources, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, stuff like that. So if you're looking for that, follow Gestalt IT and any of those platforms. You'll still see the video there. Um, but this is the... Uh, uh, Gestalt IT rundown, re returning to YouTube. We actually did uh, Google Hangout recordings yeah. to YouTube maybe like almost two years ago now, I think. Yeah, we uh, we had a process and we changed the process and we, we reverted back to the process. It's weird. It, Google kind of killed Hangouts. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out they do that sometimes. I, had, I hadn't heard of that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but uh, a lot of exciting news stories to talk about. A lot of Horrible, depressing security leaks and uh, wonderful, inspiring acquisitions. So lots of great stuff to talk about. Um, so uh, thanks for uh, everybody that's going to be joining us, watching this uh, live or watching it later. Uh, always appreciate the support. So uh, Tom, are you ready for the Gestalt IT Rundown? Let's do it. Okay. Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Graffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from... I don't know, two feet from my right is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. Um, the plane ticket to come in for a special live edition of the rundown wasn't too bad. <laughs> uh, no, I'm here in the Gestalt IT headquarters this week for some uh, meetings, and I figured, hey, why don't we just do this rundown thing in person for once? I know. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. There's like a different energy. I think when we belly laugh about something about Oracle, it'll be a lot more <laughs> inspiring. So it'll be really great. Uh, first up here, um, speaking of things that uh, make me want to cry. We were talking about crying. We we're talking about laughter. But researchers at Greenbone Networks, you know them, mm -hmm. have reported or have reported recently that hundreds of hospitals, medical offices, and imaging centers are running insecure storage systems, exposing 35 million patient exams with 1.19 billion, that's with a B, scans, half of which belong to U.S. citizens. I actually think the ones that don't belong to U.S. citizens probably are under more regulatory scrutiny, but these are all U.S.-based institutions, so that's why I think why that context is there. Greenbone has been warning these institutions of these leaks for over a year, but many have failed to take action, particularly the largest ones. The problem is due to a combination of the DICOM file format, which bundles medical images into a single file, which can be read by many freely available uh, apps. You can just download them on your PC. And the PAX server, which is used for sharing, and many offices connect that to the internet with no password because that seems like, I guess, it's hard. Interestingly, researchers found that smaller organizations were uh, much more quick to secure their systems when alerted, but the 10 largest organizations, one of which had over 65 million uh, uh, scans available, uh, provided no response whatsoever. Uh, there was one where they, they had kind of been working with TechCrunch on this report, and we have the link to the TechCrunch article here. Um, they'd, and TechCrunch contacted them, and then so the media scrutiny kind of caused one of them to actually respond. Uh, but Tom, my question is, is this just a matter of convenience versus security, right? The kind of the age old security debate, or does this speak to maybe a larger organizational issues when we're looking at modern medical IT? So I think it's a little bit more of the first issue, but there's definitely an aspect of the second that's there. Um, most people out there have been to the doctor and uh, I'm not going to go on a limb here when I say they're probably not the most tech savvy people in the world. Um, and in a lot of cases, they're either really old or they're really young and don't think the rules apply to them anyway. 
So what you get is people who are like, I don't care what you have to do to make it work easy for me, but I don't want to have to put in a password every time I log in. So guess what? No passwords, freely accessible on the internet from any device, including maybe like a mobile phone or something. And yeah, let's just make it easy to use and forget about security. I mean, really, who would want to go look at medical diagnostic images? I don't know, somebody who writes an image viewer and they're like, oh, hey, I'm going to test this out with this file format that I found online. Guess what happens after that? Now you can see everybody's MRIs and CAT scans and things like that. But more importantly, this is an organizational issue because why was this enabled by default? Like, that's my big deal. Don't connect this to the internet. We talk about micro-segmentation all the time, principle of least privilege. Why does this thing need to talk to that thing? Why did you open it all up? It's, it's being lazy more than anything else. Now, I think it's very interesting that, you know, uh, Greenbone Networks did a really great job of reaching out to people. And it is funny that the small companies, the smaller mom and pop type shops immediately fix this. Hey, the IT guys right over here across the desk from me, I can get this fixed. It's the larger places. And they may have filed the serial numbers off of this, but we pretty much know who this is. Um, oh, you know, we'll get to that. And then suddenly when a media outlet calls for uh, asking for comment, um, now they're going to fix it. I mean, I believe that's the, probably the worst phrase you can hear if you work in any kind of security is, sir, Brian Krebs is on the line and he's asking for a comment. So. Well, I, I mean, that to me is, is what's remarkable about this because, you know, this isn't the first time we've heard of maybe some problems with, uh, you know, uh, with, with IT problems regarding medical institutions. You know, these are increasingly organizations that are being targeted by ransomware. And it mm -hmm. seems like obviously they have, you know, they, they have systems in place where they have, you know, digitized, digitized medical records, uh, image searching and, and all that kind of stuff. They have the infrastructure you would have in any other type of business, but there is maybe an urgency of access that in mm -hmm. a lot of times maybe excuses security lapses in exchange for convenience, which I think a lot of people equate with speed of delivery and stuff like yeah. that. So if it's two institutions that need to share that medical scan and we can get it over in a minute versus an hour, if we have to, you know, plug in the ethernet core to the server or, you know, I'm, I'm obviously simplifying that greatly, but I do think the unique uh, uh, pressures on a medical institution uh, do open them up to maybe some more organizational issues. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, we're based in Northeast Ohio here at Gestalt IT. Um, you know, we have the Cleveland Clinic. We have University Hospitals, huge organizations with giant campuses, lots of edge locations and stuff like that. You would think that they would have very sophisticated IT systems in place. And maybe they do. And it's just, you know. Uh, DICON packs are decades old standards and technologies and stuff like that. So maybe it's just that these need to be updated and have more modern defaults, you know, with, with packs, even having the ability to have no password, I think is, is ludicrous. But again, if, if it's an older system, it might have been much more common back then when things were less uh, uh, networked, as it were. Uh, next up here in news, uh, big news from last week, Veeam was acquired by the private equity firm Insight Partners for a cool $5 billion. Veeam is the top data protection provider across Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. We, of course, know them very well from the Tech Field Day community. And Insight Partners hopes that by changing them to a U.S.-based company, they're based in Switzerland, if you didn't know, uh, it's, uh, it will help the company get better penetration into North America, a.k.a. getting that sweet grain. Uh, I've seen some analysis that says this won't be a typical private equity squeeze job since Insight is also a VC fund. So, like, it's not like their playbook isn't always just load it with debt, then shut it down. Uh, Veeam has already been making moves to expand its portfolio into data security on top of just more general data protection disaster, or I guess data protection, I don't want to say DR, uh, but does this acquisition single maybe a validation of that strategy? So this is typically when you hear that you're being acquired by an equity capital firm, the first thing you do is start writing up your resume. <laughs> That's not the case here. Um, this 
very much to me, based on what I've seen from the community, <clears throat> this is very much a play to get around some regulatory stuff. Oh, okay. uh, Veeam is incorporated in Switzerland, but for those of you who are not in the know, a lot of the ownership of Veeam comes from uh, Eastern European companies or Eastern European countries, I'm sorry. And so there has been some hesitance in recent years from the U.S. government to do business with organizations that don't have a certain kind of appearance. And this could be a way to kind of get past that, to kind of <clears throat> allay some fears about where the data is going and things like that. I can tell you, based on my experience, based on the, the business that we've done with Beam in the past, but also my personal relationship with some of the people there, they're definitely on the up and up. They're a great group of people. They make great products. Um, they do a lot of great work in the community. This is a little bit more of a, um, you know, changing the things on the back end to make it a little bit more streamlined and smooth. For those of you who use Veeam software out there, that's not going to, you know, that's not going to go away. Nothing's going to change. It's just, you know, the LLC on the end of the name is going to change a little bit. So let's let's put on our, our, our thinking caps here. Okay. Uh, I, you, you know, you're saying this move was in a lot of ways about optics in terms mm -hmm. of building partnerships with larger organizations in North America. Do we want to speculate that did Veeam approach Insight Partners and be like, hey, if you want to do, you know, here's here's the business. We're doing a pretty brisk business. We have some interesting growth opportunities. We, you know, maybe want to have an excuse to become a U.S.-based company, not, you know, boink, boink, nudge, nudge. Maybe let's let's change some money here. For, for anecdotal reasons, yeah. Yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I have no knowledge of it all whatsoever. That, mm -hmm. That's the truth. Um, I would say that it very much was being trying to approach a place, excuse me, approach a place where they could get to a better position to grow that business. This was not um, an equity capital firm coming up going, hey, um, we need you to do us a favor <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, in other acquisition news, a uh, number of interesting acquisitions uh, this week. Uh, in uh, the bare metal cloud provider packet, we've talked to them before in the past, had some features on them on gestaltit.com, was acquired by the hosting provider Equinix. Packet CEO Zachary Smith says, post-acquisition, Packet will have the same team, same platform, same vision, AKA nothing's changing. No word on what the acquisition price. Uh, for some context, though, Packet was last valued last year, I believe, at around $100 million. Packet has made a name for itself by offering some more, let's say, bespoke cloud instance options with CPU and GPU combinations. Not found on other clouds. They're very early in adopting, uh, letting you get some, some ARM instances, uh, very uh, open with doing uh, like massive core counts with uh, AMD uh, Epic servers and stuff like that, very early to turn those on. And as a smaller company, they have the agility to do that. Um, is this just Equ uh, Equinix uh, diversifying their rented DC mode uh, with some uh, with some infrastructure as a service, or do you see this as maybe a little bit more of a grander vision? I don't necessarily know that it's a grander vision as much as it's a completeness of vision. Um, Equinix is seeing companies like Packet that are picking up parts of the market that they really wish they could compete in. So you really only have two options at that point. You can spend a whole bunch of money to buy it, or you can spend a whole bunch of money to build it. <laughs> and if A, if A is greater than B, if it is more money to buy it than build it, let's go hire some nerds. But I am more often than not anymore, buying it is much cheaper because you're getting a pre-built team, you're getting a pre-built offering. Um, you just change the logo and the name on the end of it, <laughs> pack it, now buy Equinix. And well, you get what you want. And Paco has a lot of, let's say, industry goodwill around mm -hmm. it. You know, they were. I, I think they're seen as um, a, a positive player in the space. You know, so mm -hmm. so on top of you know the like literally the expense of building it, you don't have to put in that brand equity to that. You're just kind of getting that. And if you take a, a relatively hands off approach to that, let them kind of do their own thing, keep their management team in place, mm -hmm. it goes a long way to doing that. That seems like what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. 
Next up here, uh, Google announced that it will phase out the use of user agent strings in Chrome. Uh, these are, if you're not familiar with them, I guess, uh, these are the small bits of text sent to websites with your browser type, render engine, and operating system, and are often used to fingerprint users for ad tracking. Uh, I, there's been a bunch of studies on these where they've said, essentially, you're able to narrow down someone with like 98% confidence just if, if you can just figure out like literally the browser version, you know, like you know the insanely specific Google Chrome versions, your, uh, your web browser, and like just you know basic location and that kind of stuff. So it can be used for some pretty sophisticated tracking. Google plans to stop updating user agent text for new browsers uh, for new browser versions. And by mid-2020, plans to send a generic text string that only distinguishes between mobile and desktop browsers, so you don't get more detailed versions or operating systems or anything like that. Instead, user agents will be replaced by client hints, which sounds kind of just kind of silly, I guess, uh, which allows websites to request user information and was developed as part of Google's privacy sandbox. The idea is to allow advertisers enough information to categorize users into general groups without being able to individually identify them. Tom, though, you know, UA is rife with problems. I don't, I don't think anyone's like out there like a UA stand that's not like an advertising company or anything like that. But do you trust Google, an ad company, to create a better options for user and user privacy? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, th this is the thing. If this had been Google coming to me saying, I am going to phase out user agents in this big, bold move to, you know, offset all of these problems, and they were the first person that had done it. I might believe them. A, they are not the first person that's done it. In fact, they're the last browser agent that's <laughs> done it because Apple and Mozilla have basically dragged them kicking, screaming, and holding their breath to this point. Two, this is the same Google that has decided that the URL bar in their web browser doesn't really need to be there anymore. And we need to obfuscate URLs from search results. <laughs> Why? Well, it's less likely that you're going to think that what you're clicking on is actually an ad as opposed to you know the result you really want. Um, so track record aside, I applaud you, Google, for finally coming to this point. I just wish that we hadn't have had to threaten you to get here. Yeah, I mean, the the one thing, I mean, if you want to take the really cynical approach, is that by offering this new standard, you know, they're they're kind of trying to take the lead from where whatever differential privacy that Apple's trying to do or whatever approach that Mozilla's trying to do and trying to set that standard and force them into adopting, you know, this thing that everyone's kind of agreeing upon or that Everyone agreeing upon is maybe a better replacement than UA, but not and I maybe not the ideal solution. And they definitely have the market share to push that. I mean, if this is effectively going to go out to all Chromium-based browsers, that's a huge footprint. Um, you know, Mozilla notwithstanding. Just don't buy it when Google tells you that they've always been at war with East Asia. <laughs> all right. Next up here, uh, some uh, the encryption wars begin anew. Uh, let's uh, send some uh, feedback here. The FBI a few weeks or about a week ago sent a letter to Apple asking for help to unlock two iPhones of a man believed to have killed three people at the Naval Air Station in Pensacola. The FBI has requested the help of other agencies in these countries as well. They're not just reaching out to Apple. And Apple uh, has said that the FBI requested information uh, last month and will give the agency all the data it had and will continue to offer help. Apple later denied a request from U.S. Attorney General uh, Bill Barr to unlock two the two iPhones, saying, we have always maintained there is no such thing as a backdoor just for the good guys. Backdoors can also be exploited by those who threaten our national security and data security of our customers. We feel strongly that encryption is vital to protecting our country and our users' data. New York Times now reports that Apple is gearing up for a legal fight. Are we going to have another big encryption fight on our hands here, Tom, or will this de-escalate very similar to what happened with San Bernardino shooter's iPhone, where basically the FBI was like, oh yeah, we can crack this with third-party tools. We don't need you to unlock it. 
is this just a, for whatever reason, they didn't want to use those tools and they're trying to force Apple's hand through, or is this going to escalate quickly? So this will escalate, and there's two reasons why. One, the U.S. government wants a backdoor into Apple's encryption protocols, and we've known that for years because Apple turned on encryption for everything, which, by the way, excellent move, Apple. Um, it proves your commitment to privacy. You remember how in the previous story we talked about I, if, if they had done, if Google had done this and I believed that they had the best interests of everyone at heart, I might be inclined to be happy about it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the flip side of that is Apple. Hey, we're encrypting everything. And not only are we doing that, we're throwing out the keys so not even we can read your iMessages. Um, that's a, a big, bold commitment to privacy, especially when you have the U.S. Attorney General and Department of Justice taking shots at you, not only in private letters, but in court cases. Um, and yes, government officials have been flipping out and they have been telling, you know, we, we give Apple so much deference and, and they won't even unlock the phone for us. I'm happy about that. You know why? Because it means at no point can anyone get into my encrypted messages and pull any data out, good guys or bad guys. And if you don't believe that, Go look at how many of the hacking tools that were developed by the NSA got leaked on the internet and used for nefarious purposes, even though they were yeah. developed by the good guys. Now, to the question about the court case, I expect Apple is going to ride this thing into court. First of all, with 690 something billion dollars in cash, you can afford a few legal fees. <laughs> um, second of all, they want this to come to court. And the reason why, going back to the San Bernardino case, um, they were ready to go to war and the DOJ pulled out. And when Apple said, hey, why are you pulling out? They said, oh, we can get around it. Apple then countersued and wanted to know how they were gonna get around it. And the little gray box devices that were being used to get into phones, Apple actually patched that vulnerability out once they found out about it. They took the DOJ to court and it ended up, the DOJ had to withdraw from the case to prevent Apple from doing discovery against the gray box to figure out how to patch that vulnerability. Now, a couple of other details because I was reading the article on this um, yesterday. First of all, when Apple was contacted by the first iPhone within three days, they immediately provided all the information they had, which was all the encrypted iCloud backups, all the data about the phone itself. Literally the only thing they didn't give the DOJ was how to get into the phone, which is something they don't know and they can't do. This complaint comes from a uh, request to unlock a second phone they didn't know about a month later. Um, for those of you who ever find yourself in this kind of situation, if you ever find yourself in a place where someone has a locked phone and it looks like it's not going to unlock itself anytime soon, as long as you can get that phone unlocked within a couple of days, it won't lock itself permanently. The problem is the DOJ waited a month to tell Apple that they needed it. Is it a little nefarious? I kind of think so. Maybe they didn't know they needed the phone. Rule number one, if you're a private investigator or forensics investigator, unlock everything you can right now and figure out what you need later. Trust me, it's going to be a whole lot easier for you. Um, I stand by Apple on this. No backdoors ever because a backdoor will never be used for its intended purposes by the people you want it to be used for. And their commitment to privacy is stunning. If they're willing to get sued to protect your privacy, that is something. Well, and... I think it also speaks to the commitment in terms of like the optics on this, like standing by a principle of privacy, like sounds great when it's like, oh, we're going to stop ad trackers from getting yeah. to you. Like that's like an easy hill to stand on. It's another thing to say, hey, this is someone who did a heinous act, you know, both instances <laughs> uh, related to, to shootings. And 
you know, it's so it's it's very easy if you wanted to portray good guys and bad guys. Like, listen, we want to you know mm-hmm. find out more about the bad guys. We need information from this phone. It's 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 very it would be very easy for someone less committed to privacy to maybe roll over or. Uh, and I don't even know what Apple could do in this instance. The, the other instance with the San Bernardino case was you know, effectively they were being asked to create software that did not exist mm-hmm. to, cr- to crack into the secure enclave that you know lived on the device and would be required to decrypt the phone. And it's going to be the same instance, obviously, in this mm-hmm. case, too. And that is, a, is another level in terms of cooperation to create right. software that does not exist for the purpose of, of breaking into these devices. So... We will see how this escalates. Um, who uh, will stand on? Like you said, Apple has a huge war chest they can uh, they can really <laughs> draw on, and obviously uh, they're going to they're going to lawyer up uh, something something purdy. Uh, in other news, uh, another acquisition news: uh, Google announced it had acquired AppSheet, a no code development platform specialized for workplace apps like CRM, field inspections, or personalized reporting. Google plans to integrate it into Google Cloud and focus on specific verticals like financial services, retail, and media. AppSheet will continue to support non-Google third-party integrations. They have Office 365, Dropbox, et cetera, integrations, and keep existing iOS and desktop apps, so that's not going anywhere anytime soon. I know no-code development can make people's eyes roll, as in, like, this will never work, or it's only going to work as, like, a POC or something like that to get you to buy into an actual development platform, but does gearing it as a vertical-focused offering give it a better chance here, Tom? Yeah, this is basically what Google's looking at. They 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 have attacked the developer market, and yeah, GCE for being third place. Sorry, Larry, <laughs> um, is not a bad platform, but it's not non-developer friendly. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, look at AWS and, and Azure. They they basically give you the keys to the kingdom if you're even if you're not a programmer. Um, developing tools that allow for no code. Development is okay for a good number of tasks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not thinking on the level of writing your own applications. I'm thinking more along the lines of automating tasks or creating streamlined processes, things like that. That's what I'm looking for. Like a CRM is a perfectly good example. You're not me reinventing the wheel. What you're doing is you're building sheets to give you extra capabilities, which is not something that's easy to do natively. But you definitely don't need to know, you know like Python or Rust to do that. Uh, I don't know what the market for this though is. I mean. The ceiling is not overly high, and I don't think you're going to see, like, like outside of the verticals that they mentioned, which was, what, financial and uh, media, media and, and retail, yeah. not places <laughs> that you typically think of, like, you know, excuse me, sir, you really should be using Go because it's a much superior <laughs> language. That's not what you get from those people. So once you've sold all the partners and pieces in there, I don't necessarily know that you can branch this out to the you know, the home automation people or, or something like that. So maybe this is a tool that eventually gets rolled into some other functionality inside of GCE. I, I don't know. I actually think, you know, uh, going to the CRM example, I mean, obviously Salesforce is the giant in this, uh, in this area, and that's not designed to compete with that for large customers, certainly. I think for smaller teams, you know, uh, you know, uh, for Gestalt IT, you know, we have our, we're implementing our own CRM, or we've implemented our own CRM system. And, you know, designing something for, uh, you know, something that's media focused or event focused and stuff like that mm-hmm. isn't exactly what most CRMs are designed for. So mm-hmm. having something you can customize and kind of build yourself maybe would be convenient for smaller teams with more specialized uh, tasks. The thing I actually think is this this might be coming at in a weird way are uh, products like Airtable, which are like kind of like uh, basically like custom databases for mm-hmm. individuals and small businesses. Um, I, I really think if they were to specialize this, have like basically just like recipes, like, you know, kind of plug and play um, for, for, you know, CRMs and that kind of stuff, it could be an interesting way to come at that product. Um, obviously, Airtable comes in a much prettier package. 
Uh, and so that might be kind of difficult to uh, go at an individual basis. But I actually think it, it might be an interesting, uh, it's an interesting approach to that and um, one way to differentiate themselves, certainly. I'm still disappointed you guys wouldn't let me use COBOL for the CRM. <laughs> hey, Tom, I, I didn't stop it. I'm just putting it <laughs> All right, and finally here, uh, some news from IBM. Uh, they announced that they're joining the LOTS Network, a nonprofit that protects against patent trolls for their members. The network has 600 members, including Red Hat, who is a founding member, and over 2 million patent assets. Effectively, it, uh, any assets the group has in its hands uh, that fall into, the, uh, uh, fall into the hands of an entity that derives 50% or more of its revenue from patent litigation, lot members are automatically receive a license for anything kind of in their war chest. So if a company gets sold or bought up by a private equity fund, they can't turn that around and all of a sudden start uh, doing some patent exploitation, shall we say. Lot members, uh, the, or, sorry, the lot network estimates that a single piece of patent litigation costs a company an average of $3.3 million. And they, I think they had that ridiculous set, like $80 billion uh, a year go to mm -hmm. just patent litigation, which is crazy. Uh, IBM also recently joined the Unified uh, joined Unified Patents and founded the Open Source Zone to help shield startups from patent trolls as well. Is this a little bit of that uh, Red Hat open source-ness uh, kind of rubbing off on Big Blue here, Tom? <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, being a former IBMer from way back in the day, I mean, patents were a huge deal. There are still people inside of IBM. A couple of my friends actually have their own patents. Now, IBM owns them, but they're assigned to the, the engineer that developed them. Um, that was a big deal. Like a patent could get you a big raise in a, in a directorship somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, I like the fact that they're doing this. Uh, the reason why patent trolls work is because they find a patent. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll pick one out of the, the pile. Vernet X is a good example. Um, hey, we found out you were using our custom VPN technology. We're going to sue Microsoft. We're going to sue Apple. And we're going to sue everybody that could possibly have used it. And when one, one of them settles, that doesn't mean they're going to go away and they're going to take their money and go retire to some Caribbean island. It means they're going to double down on the lawsuits from the other companies because now they have a war chest. So with this idea of um, taking one organization with 600 members now all get a license to that patent dries up all of your potential um, targets pretty quickly. And not only that, um, you, you could get lucky and draw a new egg in your patent and just get <laughs> bled dry and bought out and have your you know, self assigned to a radar station in Nome, Alaska. Uh, I like the idea of what they're trying to do. I mean, when you think about how bad patent trolling is, Apple closed the Plano Apple store to get it out of the Eastern District of Texas. So they no longer had a presence in Marshall so that they couldn't be sued in the most patent friendly court in America. That's how bad it is. Apple closed an Apple store to avoid patent lawsuits. They're not kidding around. So this should hopefully um reduce that kind of behavior and and specifically with vernet x i'm sure that people are firing up the comment threads and i can hear you typing now about how apple's bullying a small company that developed a technology yeah there's a big difference between apple bullying a technology or ibm bullying a technology and a company that literally has no other products trying to you know get money out of somebody because they think they can't I mean, there's a reason why FaceTime never took off, folks, and I promise you, it ain't because of Apple. Well, the what I really like about the, and this is the first time I've heard about the Lot Network, so maybe I'm just not well informed with my patent non <laughs> patent uh, litigation protection nonprofit groups. I apologize. Mm -hmm. But what I like about this is it also, on top of protecting its members, uh, kind of. Uh, removes the incentive to kind of create these patent troll firms in the mm -hmm. first place. So it's like they know that all 600 of those companies have no value to them mm -hmm. if you're a private equity fund to try and acquire them to just make spurious yeah. uh, patent litigation lawsuit, which I think is a really smart idea. 
Yeah, and that's something that's very common. And as someone who followed the Novell versus SCO lawsuit through Grok Law for, oh my God, <laughs> it felt like decades by the time it was all said and done with. In fact, it may still be going on. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing that they do. They they spin companies off, they assign patents to other organizations, and they all seem to share the same law firm, and they all file these things. And it just gets icky the more you dive down into it. Ars Technica has done a lot of great uh, reporting on this. And just, you, you don't want to fall down this rabbit hole. But if you find yourself in a mess like this, these are the kinds of organizations that will help you. It's basically making all of your targets worthless. Uh, one thing that's not worthless is my co-host, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being on Schultz IT Rundown, for being in uh, the studios. Uh, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for sharing your desk with me today. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, the dynamic of being a person. We, we, we laughed a little more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, nobody had any kind of crazy pixelated video or anything like that. I know, yeah. Well, if there's latency, we're, we all have bad latency. If there's latency, I guess there's like a mental, like there's just literally like a sensory problem that I have if I'm experiencing latency at this point. So glad that didn't happen uh, because my senses are all working and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, you can find us every Wednesday here. Uh, we're going to be posting these on YouTube. So check it out. Uh, Wednesday's 1230 p.m. Eastern time for the Gestalt IT Rundown. And remember, you can also subscribe to this as a podcast. Video maybe isn't uh, your favorite way to consume stuff. Just in your podcast of choice, search for the Gestalt IT Rundown. You'll find it there in glorious audio glory. Yes, it's two glories there. Well, Audio Glory is my new codec. So, and I'll be licensing that. And if anybody tries to use it without my express knowledge, I'm going to sue you because I'm now a patent troll. It's a .agl. I think it has to be the yeah, extension we'll, on that. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that. We'll work on that. All right. Uh, for myself, for, oh, Tom, where can people find more of your great stuff? For so um, you can find me on Twitter as at Networking Nerd. You can find me at my blog, networkingnerd.net. I actually just tweeted out a link to all of the articles that I wrote in the last year for Gestalt IT. Um, a lot of briefings, a lot of other good stuff. And uh, if you are a fan of Tech Field Day, which is <laughs> what pays the bills around here, uh, make sure you head over to techfieldday.com. Check out the calendar. We've got a lot of great events coming up. We've got some storage uh, field, storage field day, day, Cisco Live Europe. Um, networking field day, uh, some security related stuff. There, may, we may even talk about the cloud. <gasps> what this? The cloud? Yeah, the cloud. The cloud. We're gonna get to the root of it. I'm, I'm liking that. Yeah, yeah we'll see what happens. Uh, so yeah, so check that out. You can find me on gestaltit.com as well, or find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology, Mr. Anthropology. I'll close the show out for real this time for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for everyone here in the Gestalt IT family. Here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly. <laughs>